So this is the last in a six-part series on the paramitas. So the last five weeks I've talked about generosity, discipline, patience, enthusiasm, and, and discipline. And this week we're talking about insight or praj, prajna. You could define that, you know, approximately like looking at the, the world the way a Buddha would see it. You know, piece of cake, you know. Um, in order to, to frame that, I'm going to talk about basically four ways that we know the world, four kind of stages that we know the world. And the first, of course, is head knowledge or verbal knowledge, um, which in some sense is the most superficial way of knowing the world. It's the way that is um, valorized in this society for a variety of reasons. And I, I will say, before I denigrate it too much, you know, the head is a great tool. I, you know, I love math, I love science, you know, the head is the, the tool par excellence for figuring out how the physical world works. It's just a disaster as far as connecting with people, figuring out our life meaning, this sort of thing. And I'll say that I think a lot of people are stuck in their heads, partially or fully. Um, a lot of people in this society, you know, there are some people who are stuck in their heads and, and not emotional at all. And I think there are a lot of people also who are kind of stuck in their heads and they have what I call limited access to emotions. You know, in other words, they can, they can feel the, the happy, pleasant kinds of emotions but not real, not the you know the more difficult, challenging emotions. Now, why are so many people like this in this society? Well, there's a a high degree of in this society a high degree of wounding in the lower chakras, the first, second, and third chakras. So a couple months ago, I talked about the chakras, and and that really results in a fear of vulnerability where there's a widespread fear of vulnerability in this culture and and also control issues you know and so from from up in my head you know i can at least pretend that i can control the world the way i you know control the way i arrange concepts in my head this kind of thing i'll say that sometimes the control issues are are so pronounced that it even plays out in hemispheric differences. There are some people who are just so controlled that they're stuck in their left brain. Now, the, the left brain, the left hemisphere, is the very logical, linear brain. You know, the brain of, you know, show me the exact answer. Tell me the exact steps to follow. Give me the exact thing that I can can cling to, you know. It's uh, an overall route over-reliance on the left brain alone uh, leads to a kind of uh, reliance on literalism, um, fundamentalism, this kind of thing. The right brain is, among other things, the best pattern-matching machine in the world. The right brain is, is able to see nuance, is able to appreciate multiple layers of meaning. You know, it's with our right brain that we appreciate poetry, song lyrics, um, 
a lot of humor appears appeals to the right brain um certainly irony and sarcasm all these things where there's there's multiple layers of meaning where where you would miss what's being said if you just read it in a in a blunt literal way so this is this is head knowledge um head knowledge has helps us very little in uh when it comes to personal growth and moving toward buddhahood the second way of knowing the world is of course emotional intelligence um and i'll say that at least it seems to me that a lot of people who a lot of human beings who lived on this planet you know in pre-industrial societies you know through most of human history actually human beings were living in tribes they were living in villages and i think in to a great extent there was a high degree of emotional intelligence there just because of the 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 nature of the connection um in the past couple hundred years with industrial revolution and you know into our modern uh, electronic age you know it it's almost funny like how how can i say emotional intelligence and eq becomes a buzzword it like it becomes an exciting to discovery to discover the things that human beings have or have always already been you know this kind of thing um emotional intelligence involves i would say two parts there's the vulnerability and then the accountability or responsibility the the vulnerability of feeling all the emotions feeling you know feeling the grief the anger you know feeling all those emotions within myself being able to to meet other people where they are in those emotions um and of course it's the nature of emotions that they have their own flow and they they don't follow logic and they you know sometimes strong emotions are triggered for reasons that we can't clearly identify you know and it's just you know part of the vulnerability of of being with our emotions it's just being with whatever comes up in the moment um and i will say about vulnerability i i don't think it's just one thing i don't think it's just a binary people are vulnerable or they're not um at least in my process what i found is that each new edge each new um breakthrough within myself there's another layer of vulnerability that opens up and so it's a it's a constant deepening um i really think of it as a kind of process where we're deepening into deeper layers of vulnerability throughout our lives the other side of of emotional intelligence has to do with accountability or responsibility um ultimately it's about um well one of the terms that is used is emotional sovereignty the whole idea that i am 100% responsible for what i feel you know and not not walking around blaming other people for what i'm feeling this kind of thing nonviolent communication has has some remarkable skills around that and so those are the two layers the 
the head and, and emotional knowing. The third, I'm not really sure what to call it. I'll call it energy healer knowledge, for, for lack of a better term. Um, and at least the, the, the first part of this would be when people talk about having a gut feeling about something. In other words, they're using their body as an instrument of knowing. Um, ultimately, each one of the seven chakras is a way of knowing the world or experiencing the world. And there's a particular kind of perception or information that comes through each one of the seven chakras. Um, I've studied some energy healing in my life, and I, I wouldn't consider myself, you know, incredibly perceptive or proficient in this, this realm of knowing, but I've met some amazing healers. Um, some some people that really had deep knowledge, you know, some, you know, one woman in particular, it's like, as soon as she met somebody, you know, I got the sense, knowing her over time, that it felt like as soon as she met somebody, she knew, like, their, all their lifelong issues, as if those lifelong issues were, like, printed on a t-shirt or something, you know. She was very impressive, but she was also just such a loving presence that whenever I was around her, you know, you just want to go, ah, you know, you just want to relax into her presence because she's so loving. Um, for those who are more curious about what energy healers see, I would recommend the art of Alex Gray. Um, Alex Gray has a, an amazing series, Sacred Mirrors. I remember this this powerful healer. She said when she saw the art of, of Alex Gray, she said, oh my God, that man is painting what I see all the time. And I'll, I'll say on energy healer knowledge, I, I don't know that I have um, profound knowledge along these lines, but it, it's funny. There are times that I'm walking on the street and I just get vibes about people like a, you know a person walks by I have no interaction sometimes I get a vibe of wow that's a cool person I think I would be that person's friend if I got to know them or or sometimes I get a vibe of ooh I want to stay I don't even know why but I want to stay away from that person you know um, and I think we all have vibes like this and part of it is just trusting ourselves and trusting our our sense of what we know like not not using the the head to override what the body is telling us, you know. Now the fourth level would be prajna or or Buddha knowledge, and in order to talk about that, I'll share the quote sheet because there are a couple long quotes. First, I'll share it with the the zoomies. the roomies. So the first quote 
is the first couple quotes are from the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu. Um, and the first one is the famous opening passage of the Tao Te Ching. The Tao that can be followed is not the eternal Tao. The name that can be named is not the eternal name. Nameless is the origin of heaven and earth, while naming is the origin of myriad things. Therefore, always desireless, you see the mystery. Ever desiring, you see the manifestations. These two are the same. When they appear, they are named differently. Their sameness is a mystery. Mystery within mystery, the door to all marvels. So a few things about that. First of all, you know, it begins by just frustrating the logical verbal mind right away. You know, if you can say it in words, it's not the Tao. If you can name it, it's not the real thing, you know. And then I like the nameless is the origin of heaven and earth. So the idea that when we're in that nonverbal place of just witnessing the world, we're experiencing the glory of heaven and earth. When we start naming, then we start having agendas about individual things. You know, I like this, I don't like that, you know, and we, 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 we lose that more uh, global perception. Always desireless you see the mystery, ever desiring you see the manifestations. A very common sense way to say that is we see things more clearly when we're not attached. And I think we've all had the experience of watching somebody else, watching, watching someone where we don't have much of a stake in the process. And it's like, you know, we can see, we see clearly and we can see the person because they're in the middle of it, they're not seeing it clearly, you know. And, you know, I, I certainly have had many experiences with close friends where, you know, I'm going through something, I can't see it, but a close friend can give me advice and point out the thing that is obvious to everyone else that's not obvious to me because I'm in the middle of it, you know, and, and I've often been able to do that for close friends also, you know. But part of the challenge there is, you know, it's really easy to be detached and objective when we have no stake in it at all, when we're looking at a stranger or looking at someone that we barely know, you know. How disattached would we have to be to see our own lives that way, you know? How disattached would I have to be from myself, you know? And so that's part of it, but I think part of it is also, this is a harder thing to put into words. The Tao, one way to translate the Tao is the teaching. It's the, 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 the teaching that I need, the teaching that any of us needs at any moment. And there's kind of an understanding that whatever, wherever I am in life, the whole concatenation of circumstances that present themselves to me, my personal life, what's going on in my friends and my family, my, you know, political and social situations, like the whole world canopy as it presents itself to me, is the Tao. It's the teaching I need in this moment, you know. And part of the mystery of it is that when we go into the world, we have whatever interactions we have, and maybe I have a good interaction with some people, that's the Tao for both of us, Maybe I'm not in a good place. I have a bad interaction with people. That's the Tao for both of us, you know. Whether I'm, I'm spreading light and kindness or screaming bloody murder, like either way, it's the Tao. 
and it really it it's an insight that has has really uh, touched me in a poignant way way over the years. Thinking about times when I was not my best, you know, where clearly I was whatever trip I was on, I was being very selfish, self-absorbed. I I hurt other people, you know, and looking back at these times with with incredible regret, but also realizing that even despite myself, even when I'm at my worst, the Tao is still playing out, you know. And that whatever I'm doing has also, you know, it doesn't excuse what I've done, but it lands as a soul teaching for someone else, you know. And so I think that is more the the mystery. And 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 then in that reading, you know, I can I can walk through like very unconsciously playing that game, you know, being the jerk and being what the teaching to everyone that I meet in that way. Or I can be more conscious and responsible, more intentional about how I enter into the world and play that game. More intentional about the kind of presence, the kind of energy I bring into the world, you know. The second passage from the Tao Te Ching, section 48. In learning, each day something is gained. In following the Tao, each day something is lost, lost and lost again. Until there is nothing left to do, not doing, nothing left undone. You can possess the world by never manipulating it. No matter how much you manipulate, you can never possess the world. And that, that, that last phrasing, possessing the world, where I, that, that seems a little bit grando, grandiose. I don't know that any of us wake up in a particular day saying we want to possess the world. You know, but... Um, Framing it more as possessing our own lives or occupying our own lives, you know. I can occupy my life, I can be fully present, only if I'm not manipulating it. As soon as I get into that space of, well, I want it this way and I don't want it this way, then, I'm, then I've lost the magic of the present moment. I've lost the magic of what it is to occupy my world, you know. And I want to touch on, the in the third line, not doing. That's a, that's a Taoist technical term. It doesn't mean inaction. Um, not doing wei is, um, in the Tao Te Ching, it's the opposite of wei, which is acting. Uh, act, acting in the sense of, you know, direct or forceful action, forcing something to happen, you know, or forcefully trying to persuade people to be a certain way, you know, you should be this way, you know, this kind of thing. Um, Not doing, one way to say it is, it's creating the conditions so that something can arise spontaneously, you know, in, in classroom teaching, a lot, a lot of, of good pedagogy is creating the conditions so that students make the discoveries themselves, you know, that sort of thing. So that's part of it. But at a deeper level, it, it's simply about the energy that we carry. You know, I often say that the most powerful message we send out in the world is the, the energetic signature that comes out of the core of our body. You know, we're so attached to the jabber jabber that comes out of our mouth and we think that's important, you know. Um, what's the energy we bring to the world? And what's the energetic impact we have? 
I remember somebody once telling me about the Dalai Lama. He was, it might have been Daniel Goldstein, some, some psychologist who was observing him. And, you know, part of the day, part of Dalai Lama's day, every day he's seeing um, pilgrims. And he's see, they're just lines of people waiting to see him. So he was just, the, the, the speaker, I guess it was Daniel Goldstein, he was, he was just watching this whole long line, and he said, you know, most of the line, people are just, they're looking like ordinary people, and they're, they're bored, or they're looking at their phones or something. But then when they got close to the Dalai Lama, like, you know, within, say, 15 feet or so of the Dalai Lama, everyone started looking very, very happy. And it was like this circle around the Dalai Lama. Everyone who was close to him was just radiant and full of, of joy. This was the Dalai Lama's not doing you know in other words he wasn't doing anything he was just being who he was and that was bringing this out in people you know so that that that's an example of of not what the Taoists would call not doing and then there's a great zen story oh welcome someone joining us there's a there's a great zen story um Two Zen teachers met, one carrying his bags. Where are you going, inquired the first. I'm going on pilgrimage, said the second. What's the purpose of pilgrimage, asked the first. I don't know, responded the second. Not knowing is most intimate, replied the first. And I love that phrase, not knowing is most intimate. When we're in that that place of such silence and such centering, you know, not, not, you know, dropping all my conceptual knowledge of, of the world and just being in that place of not knowing, dropping all conceptual knowledge that I have of myself, of just not even knowing who I am and just being one with the experience. Um, what is traditionally called in Buddhism, occupying the seat of Bodhi, the seat of pure awareness. That would be prajna. And of course, all these um, paramitas, they build on one another. So cultivating generosity, cultivating discipline, cultivating patience, cultivating enthusiasm, you know, all, all these will help us. So I'll, I'll continue with the quote sheet from the Buddha himself. Be a lamp unto yourself, make a light of, make of yourself a light. Um, according to tradition, this was, this this was something the Buddha said as he was dying. As he was dying, all his, his disciples were around him, and he was like, you know, all the disciples were saying, you know, Buddha, what are, you know, what are we going to do without you? Where are we going to get wisdom if you leave, you know? And, and this was his response. Be a lamp unto yourself. You know, find the wisdom within you. <coughs> Another Buddhist saying, when confusion ceases, tranquility comes. When tranquility comes, wisdom appears. When wisdom appears, reality is seen. And I'll say, I, I love the word confusion. The word confusion comes from the... It's, a, it's, such, it's such a great word. Um, comes from the, the Latin, for, Latin root fus, or found, melting. Like a fuse is something that melts, or fusion when things melt together. And so, and there's a whole series of words. 
So when we refuse the Tao, we get confused. But if we can infuse the Tao into our daily life, into our understanding, we defuse all the external problems around us. You know? So there's a lot of wisdom in that concatenation of words. From Confucius, this is kind of a loose uh, paraphrase of Confucius. By three methods, we may learn wisdom. First, by reflection, which is noblest. Second, by imitation, which is easiest. Third, by experience, which is bitterest. A, a deep one from Aeschylus, the, the, the Greek playwright. Even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until, our, until in our despair, against our will, comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. That's a famous quote because Robert Kennedy had that quote memorized. He, he read it at some point, apparently, and he loved it so much that he memorized it. And in 68, Robert Kennedy was running for president, so he was touring, and he was actually on a flight to Indianapolis where he was going to speak at a, a campaign rally. And he's getting on the plane that morning, April 4th, and he got word that Dr. King had been shot. And they didn't know, they didn't know at that point how it was. When he landed the plane, he got the word that Dr. King had died that day that morning and where he was going was mostly a large it was largely an african-american neighborhood and all the aides and all the securities were telling him don't go don't go but he he decided it was important he went he he and first thing he did is he announced to the crowd king's death and you have to remember before you know like these days we have internet and everything else everyone finds out in instantly a lot of these people, it was their first time her- hearing it, and there was a, a gasp that went in the crowd. But then he just talked vulnerably, and it was the only time that he ever talked about his own grief for losing his brother, JFK, and just about how that grief was so hard to bear, and saying that he understood grief. And he actually quoted this quote from Aeschylus, and for some reason... It, it landed with the crowd. And Indianapolis was one of the only major cities where there were not race riots that night. And sadly, of course, RFK, just three months later, he was killed. Anyway, from, from Nagarjuna, wisdom is like a mass of fire. It cannot be entered from any side. Wisdom is like a clear clear, cool pool. It can be entered from every, every side. <laughs> I love that one because it's so true. It's like, you know, the truth that we want to hear, it's the easiest thing in the world. The truth that we don't want to hear, you know, I, I fight against it tooth and nail. You know, that kind of thing. Three from, from Zen Master Dogen. Seasons change, stars shine in heaven. It's perfect wisdom. Regardless of whether we realize it or not, we are nothing but the way itself. 
We are nothing but the Tao itself. Dogen also said, the self that advances and confirms the 10,000 things is called delusion. That the 10,000 things advance and confirm the self is called enlightenment. And so again, the self that advances and confirms the 10,000 things, it's a lot like naming is the origin of the myriad things, you know, as opposed to letting everything come and speak to you in its own voice. Dogen also said quite simply, if you can't find the truth right, right where you are, where else do you think you will find it? From Emerson, the sage of Concord, the invariable mark of wisdom is seeing the miraculous in the common. Jung tells us, where wisdom reigns, there is no conflict between thinking and feeling. T.S. Eliot wrote, where is the life we have lost in living? Where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? That could be the motto of America in 2023, right there. Lin Yutang said, besides the noble art of getting things done, there's the noble art of leaving things undone. The wisdom of life consists in the elimination of non-essentials. That one is challenging when we think about it. Like, how much of what we say, how much of what we do is non-essential? How much of what we think and devote emotional energy to is non-essential? Sri Nisgardata said, Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Love tells me I'm everything. Between the two, my life flows. From Anton Saint-Exupéry, the author of The Little Prince, more wisdom is latent in things as they are than in all the words men use. Ajahn Chah says, just go to the center of the room and put one chair in the center. Take the one seat in the center of the room, open the doors and windows, and see who comes to visit. You'll witness all kinds of scenes and actors, all kinds of temptations and stories, everything imaginable. Your only job is to stay in your seat. You will see it all arise and pass, and out of this, wisdom and understanding will come. The Zen teacher Catherine Thana says, It's true, we don't know what is happening in the deepest sense. And if we can stay with that not knowing, and trust it, and enjoy it, we'll be able to experience our life in some fundamentally different way. That's our miraculous power. So I hear in that a a resonance with what the Zen master said, not knowing is most intimate. Ram Dass said, quite simply, you can't know wisdom, you have to be it. Rachel Naomi Raymond says, life offers its wisdom generously. Everything teaches, not everyone learns. Jack Cornfield says, there are no holy places and no holy people. Only holy holy moments, moments of wisdom. Tara Brock says, It is radical, cutting through the root, to call on the wisdom of our hearts. Revolutionary, one might say. And Sagyang Mingpong says, 
Discovering the selfless nature doesn't have to be a monumental eureka quality. It's much more like being continually perplexed, the way we feel when we're looking for the car keys we're sure are in our pocket. The experience of being somewhat dumbfounded is the beginning of wisdom. We look at our minds and see that it is a fluid situation, and look at the world and see that that is a fluid situation. Our expectation of permanence is confounded.